Good morning, church family. Let me encourage you to take your Bible and turn with me to the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 2, verses 23, 24, and 25, as we complete Exodus chapter 2 this morning. What a joy it's been this weekend with our students. We had D-Now this weekend. By the way, students, if you participated, or volunteers, if you participated in D-Now in some measurable way, I'd like to ask you just to stand for just a brief moment. Stand up. So church family, take a moment and look around uh, the sanctuary today. I think we had like 58 students who participated in D-Now and roughly about 30 volunteers. Thank you, Woodlawn, for the investment that you're making in our students. And we pray that God, by his word, would work in their hearts and lives to draw them to faith in Christ. Thank you guys so much for participating this week. We spent the week, the weekend, reflecting on the doctrine of salvation. So I started us off uh, Friday afternoon, Friday night, with a sermon on justification from John chapter 3 and the story of Jesus with Nicodemus. And then yesterday morning, uh, our brother Nathan Richardson spoke on the process of sanctification. And then last night, Tim Kiefer spoke on the process of of glorification and so we pray that our students leave from this weekend having a firm grasp and understanding of this process of salvation what a joy to partner with you all in that way exodus chapter 2 exodus chapter 2 as we come to uh, this section of the book of exodus this is in some ways a pause in the narrative you remember after we have this introductory statement in Exodus chapter 1, verses 1 through 7, that the narrative begins rather quickly. We learn of this one, Moses, who is born, and Pharaoh has sent out a decree that all the young men should be killed, but his mother decides to keep him hidden and places him in a basket and puts him in the river, and wouldn't you know it, God would send down to the river that day Pharaoh's daughter, who would see this this basket and rescue this this basket and in that basket there be a child and then the next thing we know Moses is at some age he's grown old enough to be able to distinguish right and wrong to know good and bad to be able to see fighting when it's taking place and Moses in anger kills a man and hides him in the sand and the very next day, Moses sees two Hebrews fighting. And he says to those two Hebrews, you shouldn't be fighting. And one of those Hebrews looks at uh, Brother Moses and says, Moses, are you going to do to one of us like you did to the Egyptian yesterday? Or are you going to kill us? And Moses is afraid. And so he takes off and he runs to Midian. And the rest of chapter 2, verses 11 through 22, is this narrative of Moses in Midian. Now we know that Moses' life thus far in the book of Genesis, in the book of Exodus, in chapter 1 through chapter 2, covers 80 years of Moses' life. 40 of those years being in Egypt, and then 40 years as he flees to Midian. But of course, God in his good providence would be kind to Moses while he was in Midian, for there he, he met his, his wife, Zipporah. And from that, the Lord continues his promise to his covenant people all the way back in Genesis 
that this people might be fruitful and multiply. So even in slavery, God continues to be faithful to his covenant promises to his people. And then we get to Exodus chapter 2, verses 23, 24, and 25. And it's almost like Moses says, time out. I want to give you a reflection. Moses wants to cue us in and reflect on the narrative that has happened thus far. But chapter 2, verses 23, 24, and 25 aren't only a reflection of everything that's happened before. They're also an indication of what is going to take place as we turn the next page and start in in Exodus chapter 3 with this divine call of Moses to go before this all-powerful king and say to him ultimately, let God's people go. And we learn from this text of scripture in Exodus chapter 2, verses 23, 24, and 25, that God responds to the prayers of his people always consistent with his will. God responds to the prayers of his people always consistent with his will. Look how this narrative unfolds here in verses 23, 24, and 25. We learn a few things. The very beginning, during those many days, the king of Egypt died. We don't know from this text, but we know from other texts that the reference here to those many days is the period of time after Moses killed the Egyptian and fled down to Midian, which is approximately 40 years. But the way the narrator writes it without this specificity of 40 years in some ways extends that 40 years and it comes across in so many ways that it was hundreds and hundreds of years long. It was a very long time. I mean, we don't like to wait for a day or three days. Some of us can't even wait the 364 days until Christmas rolls around uh, the very next year for us to find out what that present is going to be, right? We don't do well particularly when we find ourselves in intense situations and we can't see any light at the end of the tunnel, we can understand this expression. It was numerous, many, long days. But notice what's happened at the end of these long days. The king in Egypt is what? He's dead. Now, you might remember as we started the book of Exodus, I told you, told you in so many ways, Exodus is juxtaposing for us these two kings who deem themselves to be in every measurable way supreme, the Pharaoh and God, Yahweh. As the narrative continues, you want to take a guess at which one of these kings is really supreme? And which one is not? See, Moses is telling us that even though the Pharaoh 
who represents a worldly system, who represents dominance, who represents military power, who represents in every bit of its glory wealth. It's not that one who continues in inheritance. That one is dead. Friend, in case you're wondering, the context of this narrative, in case you're wondering in the context of the narrative of your life, who is in control, let me clue you in this morning. It ain't you or me. Even over the course of the last four weeks, as we see all the devastation and destruction that is being perpetrated against the country of, of Ukraine, and we see all the wickedness and the violence, and we wonder who is in control. Is it Putin? Is it Zelensky? Is it Biden? Is it NATO? Who's in control? Even there, this narrative reminds you and me, there is one reigning king and there is no competition for that God. Jesus, Yahweh, reigns supreme. And the worldly system and those that operate in that worldly system who set themselves up in opposition to God will find themselves in the exact same place that Pharaoh has found himself, dead, separated from an all-knowing, all-powerful, all-loving God. It's been a long time, but the king in Egypt who would have sought Moses' death, is now dead. And then notice what the text says, and the son of Israel groans. You might remember the first phrase of the sons of Israel in the book of Exodus goes all the way back to Exodus chapter 1. And there we learn in Exodus chapter 1 verse 1, these are the names of the sons of Israel. We've already covered this and we get these names of the sons of of Israel, and we learn very quickly that these uh, names of the sons of Israel expand rapidly as God continues, even in the midst of incredible difficulty and slavery, to fulfill his covenant promises to the nation of Israel as they expand in number. So too we are reminded through this phrase, and the sons of Israel, God is continuing to pour out his blessings upon whom? Well, as the narrative reads, it would appear upon Egypt. But notice this language of the covenant. The sons of Israel. We're being reminded that the people here who are living in oppression aren't just any group. They're not some unnamed, unknown, nomadic tribe of people in the ancient Near East. No, these people have a name. But these people don't have a name because of themselves. These people don't have a name because of any greatness or goodness in and of themselves. No, these people have a name because God himself 
has set his covenantal love and faithfulness upon this people. Who are these people? The sons of Israel. God is faithful to his people. The sons of Israel, what do they do? The Bible is going to describe for us now in rapid form exactly how the nation of Israel is going to respond after 400 long years of slavery. Don't miss these four rapid cries on behalf of the nation to God. The people of Israel groaned because of their slavery. They cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, verse 24, and God heard their groaning. We have the repetition of these four words, two of them being verbs and two of them being uh, nouns here. And we have these four repetitions, all four from the same root, but yet four different words, all highlighting the intensity of what is taking place in this moment. I can't in any imaginable way understand what it's like to live under the conditions that we've read in chapter 1 and down into chapter 2. I don't understand that in any measurable way. And by God's grace in my life, I can't necessarily understand in any measurable way being in such an intense situation for any length of time that compares in any measurable way close to what the nation of Israel has been going through. In some ways, this narrative is so far removed from any perception of reality in my heart that it's hard for me to understand the intensity of what is taking place here. But 400 long years of not just being in a land, in a place, in a home that is not yours. But being in a place and in a land and in a home that is not yours under the most extreme and difficult situation ever. And the text communicates the heart's cry of desperation to whom? Look with me in your Bibles in the book of Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy chapter 26, Moses is going to reflect for us. By the way, the narrative also, Moses also repeats a similar phrase in the book of Numbers. But in Deuteronomy chapter, in Deuteronomy chapter 26, Moses is going to reflect here upon this situation. Read verse, read verse 7. Deuteronomy chapter 26, verse 7. Then, let's start in verse 6. Sorry, let's start in verse 6. And the Egyptians treated us how? 
harshly and humiliated us and laid on us hard labor. Then we cried to whom? The Lord, the God of our fathers. And the Lord heard our voice and saw our affliction, our toil, and our oppression. How many times have we seen the Lord, God, Elohim, Yahweh, appear in the narrative in Exodus thus far? Anybody have a guess? Zero. We get a brief recounting of the difficult situation of the nation of Israel for 400 long years. And if we stop reading in Exodus chapter 2, verse 22, we might be prone to think that in this 400 period, 400 years of time, that God is in some measurable way absent. Notice what Moses is doing for us in this text. He is reminding us that God is not absent. But God is the one who responds to the cries and the pleas of his people consistent with his will. God, in this text, is depicted as one who is both transcendent and imminent. It's interesting, I find, that Moses uses the general name for God here in this text, Elohim, and not this covenantal name of Yahweh, reflecting upon Israel's cry in this passage of Scripture. Why? I think Moses is ultimately wanting to communicate something to us about this God in this text of Scripture that rightly defines both his eminence and his transcendence. God is that Elohim, that Yahweh, that one who is exceedingly uh, eminent with his people. He is closely connected to his people. That is Yahweh. That is how we've come to learn of, of Yahweh in Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2 and into Genesis chapter 3. As he has this intimate relationship with his creation. This is why God is going to respond to the cries of his people. He is closely connected to his people. But God is also this one who is completely, totally holy other than you and me. He is far and above anything that you and I could ever imagine or comprehend. He is the only one who is powerful enough to remedy the situation that the nation of Israel finds herself in. But notice this text. In some ways leaves open-ended to whom Israel is crying. Let's read it again from Exodus chapter 2. Verse 22. 
Verse 23, during those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the sons of Israel groaned because of their slavery, and they cried out for help. The text doesn't tell us right here to whom they are crying. Deuteronomy, Moses obviously tells us that they're crying out to the Lord. But notice verse 24. Who responds to their cry? God. And God heard. Now four times the text of Scripture, three times before this, the Scripture tells us that the nation of Israel has cried out to God with these intense words of cry and of groan. But notice now how the text reveals to us what God does. With four quick verbs, we learn how God responds to the cries of his people. Notice it in verse 24 and down into verse 25. And God heard their groaning. God remembered the covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the sons of Israel, the people of Israel, and God knew. God heard. God remembered, God saw, God knew. See, Moses is comparing for us humanity's response to difficulty and God's response to difficulty. And notice what Moses is telling us. God responds to the prayers of his people always consistent with his Will. These four verbs define for us something about the very character and nature of God. God is always responding to his people consistent with his will, consistent with his nature, consistent with the way in which he has revealed himself. He's not responding to us in a way that is different than how he has communicated who he is and how he responds. 400 years of intense, deep, dark, evil, wickedness, and God responds. Now, at least in my mind, friends, it raises the question, why didn't God respond on day one? Or maybe we're a little bit more charitable toward the nature of God. We're willing to understand in some measurable way that life is going to throw us curveballs. And we're willing to live with a measure of difficulty for a moment. So, so perhaps we're willing to say, okay, we understand why God didn't respond on day one. But, I mean, why didn't he respond at least by day Forty. But perhaps we found ourselves in 40 days of difficulty before. And as we look back, it's easy to see, you know, those 40 days really were not all that difficult. So we're willing to extend a 
a measure of grace toward God in this situation. So we say, okay, well, why didn't God at least respond in a year's time? Why doesn't God at least respond by year number five? I mean, after year number five, it's like, come on, there's no reason. Four hundred long years? Does Israel even by this time know who God is? Has Israel by this time given up hope? I mean, who would condemn Israel for giving up hope? Who would look at Israel and cast a stone at her and say, Oh my goodness, you terrible, evil, wicked people. You couldn't wait for the Lord 400 years. By this time, surely, Israel has even forgotten God. See, friends, God is not a God who is responding to the plight of people based off of humanity's timeline. God is a God who is responding to the plight of people based on his timeline. For see, friends, we could ask the same question as it relates to our Redeemer, Jesus. Why does it take 2,000 years? Why does it take 3,000 years? Why does it take 4,000 years after God has created the heavens and the earth, after God has formed for himself a people, after God has given his his, his covenant promises to his people, after God has revealed his word to his people, why does it take thousands of years? Why does God leave his people for thousands of years in a state that I want to propose to you this morning that is far greater than any earthly oppression or slavery that one might experience? God wait to send Jesus when he did in human history. Paul, in reflecting upon this exact thought, has something to say to us in Galatians chapter 4, <coughs> verse 4. Galatians chapter 4, verse 4, Paul records these words, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, for what purpose? To redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoptions as sons. Why does God wait for thousands upon thousands upon thousands of, of years to remedy the sinful situ situation of the human heart?
because God always responds at the exact right time in an excellent way. This narrative is reminding us that at the right time in human history, God is going to respond to the cries and the pleas of the desperate, difficult, dark, demonic oppression of his people. And God has responded to that desperate, dark, and demonic, oppressive situation of sin for you and for me by sending at the right time his son Jesus. Have you cried out to God today for salvation from your sin? Have you cried out to God for redemption, for reprieve? From the greatest enslavement in all of human history, enslavement to sin. Friend, if you've never trusted in the person of Christ, I want you to know that God has responded on your behalf through the person of Jesus. And God has done all that is necessary for you to have a right relationship with himself through the person of Jesus by sending Jesus to be that one atoning final sacrifice, appeasing the wrath of God and making it possible that by faith and through faith, you and I might have a relationship with Christ. But that relationship, friends, only comes about as this narrative reminds us. We recognize that apart from Christ, we are in a sinful condition and cannot save ourselves. Only God. Have you cried out to Him today? Have you acknowledged your sin? Have you acknowledged your rebellion against God? If not, the Bible says today is the day of salvation, for tomorrow is not promised. Whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Trust in Jesus. Believe in God's providential work on your behalf and sending Jesus to rescue you from your sin. But I have a question for you this morning. Is God's response to the nation of Israel primarily a response to their oppressive slavery? Might we say from this text that God is this compassionate and merciful and kind and gracious and loving God, and of course, he is not in favor of, of slavery, and it's an, a, 
expression of, of sinfulness. And, and because of this, God is so concerned and compassionate. And God responds. Is that the primary controlling motif for God's response to the nation of Israel? I want to remind you what I said to us at the beginning that this narrative teaches us. God responds to the cries of his people. How? Consistent with his will. Consistent with his nature. Consistent with how he has revealed himself. I want to propose to you this morning, as I believe this text very clearly indicates, that God's response to Israel's problem is not primarily in response to Israel's problem, but primarily a response to the very character and nature of who God is. So we go all the way back to Genesis, and we see this very close connection now between Genesis and Exodus. In Genesis chapter 12, we learn the first expression of God's covenant with Abraham. And God makes a covenant with Abraham, and in Genesis chapter 12, beginning in verse 1, the Lord makes this promise to to Abraham, that he's going to make him a father of, of many nations, and he's going to give to him a land. But it wasn't only that he was going to be a father of many nations, many people, and that they would have a land. Oh, by the way, can I take a time out for just a second in this passage? What were the two covenant promises of God to the nation of Israel, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that he would give to them, that they would be a numerous people, that they would be a, a, a people of untold numbers. You can't number them. And number two, that they would have a land. Thus far in the book of Exodus, which one of these covenant promises has God been faithful to the nation of Israel in regard to? People. Right? What's about to happen in this narrative? The narrative is about to shift. As the Bible says, God heard, God saw, God remembered, and God knew. The rest of the narrative of, of Exodus through the Pentateuch is going to remind us of God's covenantal promises in regard to land as the nation of Israel begins to make their way toward the land of Canaan. Okay, now back to the timeout's over. The problem is I don't remember where I was before the timeout. Can you rewind the recording real quick? And Gracious, I'm just 41. This isn't supposed to happen. Okay, give me just a second here. <laughs> I shouldn't have taken the time out. Amen. Okay, we're back to Genesis. Thank you, sweetheart. I heard your voice and I remembered. That's always the case. We've got these covenantal promises beginning in Genesis chapter 12. The Lord's going to give to the nation of Israel a numerous group of people. He's going to give to them land. But what else does God promise in his covenant promises to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. Those who bless you, I'm going to do what? And those who curse you, I'm going to do what? Uh-huh. 
What is this narrative reminding us of? God is faithful to his character and nature. God is faithful to his word. And friends, we can have assurance that as we cry out to God, that God will always respond to you and to me in a way that is consistent with his very character and with his very nature. And how do we know what that character and nature is? He has revealed it to us. God is responding to the nation of Israel, not primarily because the nation of Israel is being oppressed, but primarily because he is faithful to who he says he is. You and I can trust God. God is going to respond in a way that is consistent with his very nature, with exactly who he is. He's going to move the people toward their land. But ultimately, the narrative that is being set up between God and Pharaoh that's going to happen beginning in chapter 3 is going to be a response from God based off of his very covenantal promises to the nation of Israel. Why does God respond to Pharaoh in the way that he does because God's response is always conditioned upon his covenant. What is one of the conditions of the covenant? Those who bless you, I will bless. And those who persecute you, I will persecute. What's Pharaoh's problem? He has set himself in opposition to the all-powerful, all-knowing, supreme creator, Yahweh. And God responds to his people because of his covenantal promises. And look what the text of scripture says. God heard their groaning. And God does what? Remembered his covenant. Now you might be tempted to think that God is forgetful. God is not like your spouse. He doesn't forget. God has not been sitting up in heaven. And all of a sudden, after 400 years of demonic activity, of slavery, all of a sudden, one of the angels runs up to to God and says, hey, dude, wake up. The nation of Israel is down there crying. Listen what they're saying to you. Okay, what are, what are they saying? Oh, yes. Huh. Jesus, Holy Spirit, you remember that day? When I made that promise to Abraham? Yeah, we remember that day. Okay, great, let's respond. No, this word of Remembering is not a connotation that God has somehow uh, slipped into divine amnesia and forgotten how he is to respond. This word here that God remembers is an indication of God taking 
act, God responding to his covenantal promises to the nations of Israel. Why? God is always going to remember and respond to his covenantal promises to his people. You remember what happens in the flood? What does the Bible tell us about God in relationship to Noah? God did what? He remembered. And what did God do when he remembered with brother Noah? He provided salvation, did he not? What happens from this text when the text tells us that God remembered? God is going to provide salvation for the nation of Israel. And look with me in Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1, verse 72, as John the Baptist's father reflects upon the very person or the very blessing that God has given to Zechariah and to his and to his wife. Verse 67 of Luke chapter 1 tells us, And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, verse 72, To show the mercy promised to our fathers and to what? Remember his holy covenant. Why does God send forth Jesus? God sends forth Jesus because he has remembered his holy covenant with his people. God is going to act on behalf of humanity in giving us Jesus. Moses is telling us by this word remembered that God always responds in a way that is consistent with his word. God honors his word. He remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. This word to know, yada in the Hebrew, is a word that is used at a number of really important times in relationship between God and his people, but also in intimate relationships between people. And by Moses using this word, yada, it's a reflection back to the covenantal promises. This is a word of, of covenant. God knew. God knew intimately, exactly who his people were. And God is going to respond in a way that is always consistent with his will and according to his word. Why? God's promises never fail. Here's Psalm 136. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. For his steadfast love endures how long? Forever give thanks to the God of gods, for his steadfast love endures how long? Give thanks to the Lord of lords. Why? For his steadfast love endures forever. 
Friend, I don't care what situation you find yourself in now. Be confident. Be assured of God's covenantal promises to us. Who is the us? Those who live under the new covenant. What is the new covenant? Those who by faith have trusted in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Regardless of the difficulty of the situation in which you might find yourself. And be assured, friends, that God has promised us that we will indeed suffer. But in your suffering, would you be reminded this morning that God knows, that God remembers, that God sees, that God hears? Might that encourage you this morning to stick it out in a difficult marriage relationship that's taking place? Might that encourage you this morning to Stick it out in a difficult relationship that's taking place between you and a friend at, at work. Might it encourage you to stick it out in a difficult relationship that is taking place even at this very moment, but moment between you and someone else in the life of this church? Might it remind us to trust in an all-powerful, all-knowing, all-sufficient God who hears the cries of his people and always responds consistent with his will. Would you pray with me? Lord, thank you for this revelation of yourself to us. Thank you that you have so clearly reminded us through this passage of Scripture of your incredible faithfulness and kindness. Thank you, God, that you are one who's the same yesterday, today, and forever, that you're, you're never changing, and we don't have to live our lives guessing, wondering how you might or might not respond. And this morning, God, my faith calls us to trust and that greatest promise ever made, to trust in Jesus. Would you spend a few moments where you're seated this morning and reflect on this text of Scripture?